Funding for Think comes from SMU Master and Doctor of Liberal Studies programs. After months of being courted by candidates and stalked by journalists, Iowans are set to caucus tonight. Whether their choices for party nominees will predict the outcome of primaries nationwide remains to be seen. But Iowa voters and voters elsewhere, everywhere in fact, will be making choices for 2016 with brains that have not changed much over the last 10,000 years. This is Think on KERA. I'm Chris Boyd. My guest says our evolutionary wiring can keep us from fully engaging with challenging issues, prevent us from accurately assessing the intentions and capabilities of office seekers, even interfere with our empathy for people whose suffering might be relieved by public policy. But he's convinced it doesn't have to. Rick Schenkman is publisher and editor of the History News Network and author of the new book, Political Animals, How Our Stone Age Brain Gets in the Way of Smart Politics. Rick, welcome to Think. I am delighted to be here. Thank you so much. So as much as we feel different from other animals, we are animals just the same. To what extent do we function based on instinct despite these very powerful brains that we have? Well, here's the problem we have. Our brain was basically designed to help address the problems that hunter-gatherers faced during the two-and-a-half-million-year-long period that's known as the Stone Age, not to address the problems that we human beings face in the modern age in the 21st century. And it's a real disconnect. There's a mismatch. In our personal lives, often we can go with our instincts. But in politics, which involves the fate of millions of people, well, we have a problem because our brain wasn't designed to deal with millions of people, but to deal with small groups of people in our immediate uh, surrounding. And to be clear, the, facts that, the fact that traits have evolved um, and lasted into the modern era does not necessarily mean they serve us optimally, just that they haven't you know, caused us all to, to go extinct. Exactly. So it's not that we're stupid, and you make this point in the book. We just Do we act in stupid ways, or what's the problem here? Our politics are stupid. Uh, Eight years ago, I wrote a book called Just How Stupid Are We Facing the Truth About the American Voter? And that's what got me on this uh, uh, road of trying to explore the science behind this. So you've got uh, uh, all kinds of horrible statistics that indicate our politics are stupid. So uh, only one in five Americans know that we have 100 U.S. senators. A majority of the American people don't know we have three branches of government. They can't name the three branches of government. On the eve of the Iraq War in 2000, 2003, in March of 2003, just as we're about to launch missiles at Iraq, uh, a majority of the American people thought that Saddam Hussein was behind 9-11 and that that was the main reason why we were going to war with Iraq, and that made sense to them because of that reason. Now, none of these things uh, indicate that people are uh, stupid and have a low IQ, despite the title of my old book. Um, I was just trying to grab the attention of the American public and say, look, we have a real problem. Well, now Donald Trump has, I think, helped uh, make my case for me. It's very obvious to most thinking people, I think, that we do have a problem. People are being manipulated by politicians like Trump who are playing on their basic instincts rather than to higher-order cognitive thinking. And that's a real trouble in a modern uh, 21st century democracy. Rick, why do we find it so hard to change our thinking about people or about issues, even when new information would seem to demand a whole new way of processing that information? For example, um, there are people who still believe that President Obama is a foreign-born um, pr- practitioner of Islam. They, they, they think he's Muslim. 
Yeah, well, they think he's Muslim. They think he was born in Kenya. I mean, this is millions and millions of people, so this is not insignificant. It's a real problem. Basically, it comes down to this. Belief trumps facts. Back in uh, 2004, neuroscientists and social scientists uh, Drew Weston conducted uh, a bunch of experiments where he put people inside an MRI machine, and he said, uh, here are uh, a bunch of hypocritical statements made by George W. Bush. Uh, what do you make of them? Well, the Bush supporters uh, basically ignored the bad information, and you could see in from their brain activity that they literally were shutting off the flow of information into their brain so they didn't have to deal with it. And that put them into a state of ease. And when he had uh, John Kerry voters inside the MRI machine and he asked them about hypocritical statements that John Kerry had made, the same result. As human beings, we don't want to be disturbed by what the social scientists refer to as dissonance. We hate dissonance. So our brain quickly tries to uh, create a situation where uh, it gets rid of the dissonance. And it does that not by changing our belief, but by uh, getting rid of the facts. But I do want to point this out, and it's something that I emphasize in the book. Science is giving us new insights into how our brain works that also make me an optimist. And here's why. There's something called the theory of effective intelligence. And what this suggests is that anxiety, which is an emotion that all human beings are born with, unless you're a psychopath, uh, we are born with this feeling of anxiety. And what that means is that when we get a significant disconnect between our personal strongly held beliefs and what the world is telling us is reality, at some point the burden of hanging on to our belief uh, becomes greater than the burden of entertaining the idea of changing our belief. And what triggers that feeling is anxiety. So as human beings, much as we don't want to know the truth, we don't want to face the truth, we want to kind of shut it down, uh, at some point our brain kicks in and says, hey, wait a minute, you actually better revisit this issue. And yet we really, you know, want someone to blame when things aren't going well. And you have some remarkable case studies of times when, Things like natural disasters affected, you know, portions of the population. And when that happens, these are, you know, storms and shark attacks, things that have nothing to do with political leadership. People kick incumbents out of office. Yeah, I opened the book with the story of the worst shark attacks in American history. They occurred 100 years ago off the uh, coast of uh, New Jersey, in uh, southern New Jersey, in these little beach towns over there in the summer of 1916. And four people lost their lives over a two-week period in a series of fatal shark attacks. Well, the immediate impact on the community was that the hotels emptied out, restaurants started going bankrupt because, of course, all the tourists fled. Nobody wanted to go in the water anymore, right? Um, so that's a case of our instincts working the way they were designed to work. That was a good thing. That made sense. Four months later, Woodrow Wilson was on the ballot. He was running for re-election. 
Now, he had been the governor of New Jersey, the president of Princeton, so people locally uh, knew him. And back uh, four years earlier, when he first ran, he had won their support overwhelmingly, and he had uh, won the support of New Jersey voters. What happens in the 1916 re-election? Well, in everywhere else in the state, he runs pretty much the same way that he ran four years earlier, and he's re-elected. But in the beach towns that had faced these horrible shark attacks with the resulting economic dislocation after the hotels emptied out, he lost decisively in the same percentages as Herbert Hoover would lose uh, another generation later after the onset of the Great Depression. So were they blaming Woodrow Wilson for these shark attacks? Well, obviously, you couldn't hold Woodrow Wilson responsible for the shark attacks. But in human brains, there's a portion of it that says when you are experiencing bad times, you've got to hold somebody to blame. And they decided to hold the incumbent, Woodrow Wilson, to blame. And social scientists have uh, all kinds of studies that show how this uh, pattern shows up over and over and over again. And that's a pattern, I suppose, that would make sense if you were in uh, a sort of small group or a tribe with 50 people and there was one person in charge who was messing up things for the entire group. It, It doesn't seem to make so much sense when you're dealing with hundreds of millions of people. Well, exactly. That is the point of uh, uh, the whole book. That's what I'm trying to say is that there is this uh, mismatch between our instincts and the situation which we find ourselves. So what I'm calling on people to do is every time they have an instinctive response in politics, they need to second-guess themselves and ask this question. Does the current context fit? Do our instincts, which are driving us to believe one thing rather than another thing, uh, do those instincts match the circumstances in which we find ourselves? If they do, great. And sometimes they do. So, for instance, if you see a, a terrorist lopping off the head of some innocent victim as a human being, you're watching this on TV and you have an instinctive reaction, that's appalling, that's horrible. That's a... that. That context works. Um, You're having the right reaction. But you are not having the right reaction if the next thing you do instinctively is to say, we need to send jet bombers over there and start bombing people. That That act of having bombers go over there, well, now that's a complicated question. That's a policy question that involves very hard to answer questions about what would be the effectiveness Is there great danger that we're going to kill a lot of innocent people? And whether or not this is actually going to to work in the end, or are we going to wind up alienating more people than we are uh, killing of of the bad guys? So uh, that's where you need to stop and say, whoa, I need to second-guess myself. And that requires higher-order cognitive thinking, which, of course, uh, as Daniel Kahneman, the uh, famous psychologist at Princeton, says, our brain is lazy. We don't like to do that kind of thing. We'd prefer to just go with our instinct. Well, Rick, why are we more afraid of terrorist violence, um, which is horrific but rare, than of, say, being killed because the infrastructure in this country is not in great shape? 
The social scientists have a wonderful phrase that I learned. You know, I'm a historian, so for me, uh, uh, the last five years that I was working on this book was a real adventure. It was an intellectual adventure in learning about the insights from social scientists, neuroscientists, evolutionary psychologists, political psychologists. Um, I hadn't uh, studied anything like this uh, since I was in college 40 years ago, so this was, this was a real uh uh, a wonderful adventure. And here's one of the things I learned. The social scientists have a phrase called perceptual salience. And what that means is that we respond to what we perceive is important. Well, when we see pictures on television night after night of terrorists blowing up buildings and killing people, and we're literally watching them execute people, lopping off their heads, we can't help but have a strong reaction because it's affecting a lot of our senses. Certainly our visual uh, sense is just completely engaged when we see some horrible act like this. And the problem with, like you say, uh, uh, what about infrastructure falling down? Well, occasionally we see a picture of or video of a bridge collapsing but most of the time, we're not seeing that night after night after night. If we were, then it would become perceptually salient, and we would have a response, an instinctive response to it, like, wow, this is a real problem. We need to spend a lot of money. We need to fix this. Uh, but it's fleeting. But the terrorism stuff tends to be on the news all the time. <laughs> and so it becomes something that's perceptually salient to us. Rick Schenkman is my guest. He's publisher and editor of the History News Network and author of the new book, Political Animals, How Our Stone Age Brain Gets in the Way of Smart Politics. If you'd like to join the conversation, you can call 1-800-933-5372, email think at kera.org, or find me on Twitter at Chris Boyd Think. On KERA. I'm Chris Boyd, speaking this hour with the publisher and editor of the History News Network, Rick Schenkman. He's got a new book out called Political Animals How Our Stone Age Brain Gets in the Way of Smart Politics. You can join us at 1 800 933 5372. Rick, given that most Americans will never be in the same room with any of the people they ever vote for, let alone spend enough time with them to really know them on a personal level, how is it that we formulate opinions about our politicians in the first place? Well, this is uh, some of the most scary research that I came across. We form an opinion about somebody within 167 milliseconds wow. of meeting them. Now, this is faster than it takes to blink your eyes. 
Wow, think about that. Let that sink in for a minute. That's just crazy. And if you give people more time to make an evaluation, they just become more convinced that their initial impression was the right impression. So here's a study that was done. It involved a couple of hundred Harvard students, and they were asked to take a look at uh, 10-second video clips of uh, politicians who had uh, run for office and won. And they were trying to, well, some of them had run, had won and some of them hadn't. So they asked these uh, kids, hey, um, who do you think um, you like the best? And they came up with nearly 60% of the winners. That suggests that what they're doing in looking at these 10-second video clips is an awful lot like what the voters must be doing since they're coming so close to the same kind of conclusion as the voters. So even though we talk so much about policy and we think that we're rational, actually, a lot of the time we may just be making up our minds based on our instant reactions to somebody. And that is not a very clever way to run a democracy. We have this sense that we can tell when somebody is lying to us and that we can tell when they're telling the truth. It would seem to be an evolutionary advantage to be able to detect lies, Rick, but I wonder if maybe it's a greater advantage to be able to get away with them. Well, both happen. So we have both in our brain kind of a built-in McAfee system that is trying to protect us from people we come across who are uh, lying to us. And we also have a built-in system of hackers trying to (laughs) defeat uh, other people's McAfee system. Because in some circumstances, it's really helpful to us and to our fitness, the survival of of our genes, to be able to uh, get away with a good lie. And in other cases, it's certainly better for our fitness if we can... um, uh, be really truthful. So uh, we we work at both we work both sides of the street here as human beings. And what it means is that when you are looking at politicians and you're trying to assess whether or not they're telling the truth, well, you've got your uh, lie detector mechanism working at full blast, but they've also got their we're going to try and manipulate you. Uh, systems working full blast. So you're, you're, you're both trying to work it out. Now, there are two things uh, uh, that uh, help save us from uh, being uh, manipulated by uh, uh, lying politicians. So one is reputation. A person who lies repeatedly eventually in our society earns a reputation for lying, and that really helps. Um, but, of course, it can take years and decades. Look at Richard Nixon. Uh, here's a guy who Democrats, of course, didn't like for years, but the American people kept reelecting him uh, to high office, and they elected him president twice and the second time in uh, the greatest landslide in American history. So it takes an awful lot of time before we finally catch on, before a majority finally catches on. So that's one thing. The other thing is that when we are... Uh, listening to somebody uh, talk, uh, we have our antenna up. We are trying to uh, gain some idea about whether or not they are lying to us. So we see, are they twitching? Is their voice rising a little higher? Do they seem nervous? 
But here's the thing. Here's where uh, the politician can get around our cheater detection system. All the politician has to do is believe what they're saying. They're like a used car salesman. If the used car salesman believes the pitch that he's making to you, well, it's a lot harder to detect where his lie is. So these politicians just convince themselves that they're telling the truth, and then they don't seem nervous. So our cheater detection systems go silent. They, we don't get a flare in our brain saying, hey, I think this guy is nervous. I think he's lying to me. Wow, that's really problematic. <laughs> the Nixon thing is personal for you. Oh, so you're going to bring that up, are you? <laughs> you put it in your book, so absolutely I'm going to bring it up. I did. I did. I'm only joking with you. <laughs> um, so uh, 40 years ago, I was a uh, student in college, and I was wholly in the tank for Richard Nixon. I loved Richard Nixon. I thought the world of him. I was one of these millions of people who uh, was taken in by him. He had gone uh, to China and Russia. He seemed to be a peacemaker. uh, It seemed like he had closed down the Vietnam War in about uh, as good a way as possible, given the uh, uh, horrible circumstances of that war. And I thought he deserved re-election. And when the Watergate stories started coming out, well, what did I do? I actually followed the Watergate story really closely. I knew the story inside out. I knew all the facts, and yet it didn't persuade me. Month after month after month, disclosure after disclosure after disclosure, the Saturday Night Massacre, all these horrible things were happening, and I just kept sticking by Richard Nixon. I stuck by him until two months before he finally resigned, and that was long after a majority of the American people had uh, abandoned Richard Nixon. So what was going on there? What was going on inside my head? I was a smart guy. I was educated. um, I knew the facts. And yet I allowed myself to be completely bamboozled by this man's lies. Well, what was going on was belief was trumping facts. And my partisan brain was in overdrive and I wasn't allowing the facts in. And that is what happens in politics. And that haunted me for years. And part of uh, writing this book was um, a quest to kind of finally figure that out. And what I finally figured out was I just have to come to terms with the fact that uh, while facts are important and I love facts, facts are not decisive in the end. Uh, Belief uh, uh, is really, really important, except when um, the burden of hanging on to your belief becomes greater than the burden of switching your belief. And that's that discussion of anxiety that we had a little bit while ago. Um, Actually, I thought your candor about that story was great, and it really sort of drew in the reader. But um, it can work the other way, too, right? You you can despise a candidate um, despite evidence that this person might be fit for office for whatever reason or or might be a good choice. Um, it's, It's easy to hang on to the fact that you just really can't stand somebody. Oh, yeah. I think that this is uh, a big part of what's happened uh, during the uh, Barack Obama years. Uh, You have uh, Republicans who took an instant dislike for him, in some cases perhaps because uh, he was a black man in the White House and they were not ready uh, for that kind of uh, significant, important change. It just really uh, 
didn't sit well with them. Uh, in other cases, just because he was uh, uh, pushing through uh, the largest social reform since uh, Lyndon Johnson in the Great Society days, uh, uh, Obama health care reform was really um, uh, huge, uh, to borrow Trump's uh, vocabulary. And uh, people just uh, had this dislike toward him. And it wouldn't it didn't matter what the facts uh, were. They just basically uh, seized on any fact, uh, any evidence that seemed to reinforce their belief, which is something that social scientists refer to as confirmation bias. So uh, once we have a conviction, we then just look for evidence, facts, stories, anything that we can find that bolsters our belief. And then there's something, there's the opposite, which is called disconfirmation bias. So any facts that came out that suggested that maybe Barack Obama had done a good job, well, we tend to disconfirm all those kinds of facts. So this makes us uh, have a very partisan, uh, prejudiced uh, uh, brain, and that is just part of uh, what being human is. And we also seem to want to put people in a box. You know, sometimes my I have a 13-year-old daughter, and she'll come home and say, was this president good or bad? As if, like, you can definitively put them in one category or the other when um, it would seem, you know, down the line with very few exceptions, most of our presidents did good things, and they did some bad things or some regrettable things at the same time. That's a great point. So uh, the human brain is designed to... Uh, come up with as many shortcuts as possible and still have us survive and thrive. So we are constantly trying to not think about things so that we can focus on genuine threats to our survival. Hmm. So if we can uh, come up with a quick stereotype about uh, a group of people or a uh, an individual president, we're going to go with that. Because we don't have time to be thinking really hard about those people. So, like, Nixon's when, in charge. I can relax now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, or o- Obama's a bad person. I've reached I, that conclusion. Yeah. We don't like to revisit our thinking. Yeah. Um, if, if you had to revisit your thoughts all the time, you couldn't, you couldn't get out of bed in the morning. So this is part of our human survival is that it's dependent on us coming up with what the social scientists refer to as schemas, which is basically a way of understanding the world and our place in it. So we come up with a serviceable stereotype about the way the world works, about other people, about presidents, about groups. And until we are confronted with overwhelming evidence that that schema doesn't fit the facts, We stick with it so that we can focus on other things that are more important, more perceptually salient to us. So we might be disappointed not only when our leaders fail to live up to certain moral and ethical standards or to effectively manage a challenging situation. We can also be disappointed when they just dare to be honest with us. What, What do our Stone Age brains have to do with the way we punish politicians who speak the truth that is unpleasant? Well, this is another great point. So I tell the story in the book about Walter Mondale, who to this day thinks that when he told the American people the truth, 
1984, when he was accepting the Democratic Party's nomination for president, he was running against uh, Ronald Reagan, for your younger listeners who may never have heard of Walter Mondale. So he get, he gets up there and he says, uh, hey, Ronald Reagan's going to raise your taxes, and so am I. Uh, he'll deny it. I just told you I would. Well, Mondale thought he would get a lot of credit for being authentic and for being a truth teller. And in his memoirs, which he wrote a few years ago, he stands by that claim. Well, Walter Mondale is a wonderful person, but he's he was he's overwhelmingly too naive to be president of the United <laughs> States. The American people don't want the truth. What we want is to have our beliefs confirmed. That's what human beings always want. We don't privilege the truth. We want our version of the truth to be privileged. And that's why we get taken in by myths all the time. Um, three of the books that I've written uh, over the last few decades uh, involve myths that Americans uh, believe about uh, our own history and the history of other people. Uh, everything from uh, the log cabin myth uh, to Betsy Ross and sewing the first flag, the Liberty Bell. These are all stories that we grow up with as kids. Historians have debunked all of these, uh, and yet we still believe them in in the culture. And why is that? Because we would rather continue believing a myth that makes us feel good about ourselves, makes us feel uh, that we're an exceptional people, for instance. That's one of the classic myths, right, that uh, America is, is an, uh, an exceptional country in, in 100,000 ways and much better than all these other countries around the world. And we believe that. And, of course, that makes us feel good about ourselves. And we don't want to revisit that. We don't want to question it. Well, that's that's something that Walter Mondale apparently couldn't get he he couldn't get his head around that. He's he really thought that we privileged the truth. He he bought into the children's myth that uh you know just tell the truth and everything will be okay. Uh we don't want to hear hard truths from our politicians. That's why Reagan won by telling us it's morning in America. I mean, that was a meaningless uh catchphrase, but it went over well because people wanted to believe it. Another part of this is that we're optimists at heart. 80% of us, according to social science research, are optimists. And what that means is that that's the largest constituency that's out there. So anytime a president tries to tell us hard truths uh, that maybe uh, will uh, make us think uh, darkly about the future, uh, they're not going to get themselves elected. <laughs> You've got to tell people what they want to hear. It's got to be an optimistic message. Is there something different about politics and politicians, though? Because, for example, you know, if I go to the doctor and I've felt okay, but she says you have a disease that you need to take care of, or if I go to the bank and my banker says you're out of money, um, I, I don't typically blame them for that problem. Well, that's a good point. And this is the problem that we have with politics is politics in the modern world is not terribly personal. Hmm. It's uh, conducted on an abstract level. So a politician who's trying to reach millions of people, he's not talking to a group of people who are right in front of him, who he has lived with and worked with for years and years and years, which was the case with our hunter-gatherer ancestors living in small communities of more, no more than 150 people. He is trying to persuade millions of people to vote for him and to support his causes. Well, 
That means he's got to try to use all kinds of tricks and strategies to get us to go along with him. And uh, what I argue in the book, I have a whole chapter on this, is that uh, when you are trying to lead these large groups, you are inevitably going to be pushed in the direction of manipulation because these large groups don't really hang together all that well. Families, close-knit families, they hang together in a crisis. What do groups do? Let, and let me just elaborate on that a bit. Uh, even when uh, the Sarnayev brothers were uh, 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 cornered and uh, one was killed and the other was captured, this is these were the, the two brothers who pulled off the, the Boston, the Boston bomb exactly a few years ago. Um, their family stood behind them. When a group gets in trouble... What happens? Everybody starts fighting each other. That's what's going on in the GOP right now. The party just starts to collapse. And it's because large groups of millions of people don't hang together very well. So politicians trying to lead those groups have to really manipulate them uh, through red, white, and blue patriotic appeals, fear, gotta anger. Got to jump in here. My guest is Rick Shankman. We'll be back in two minutes. Funding for Think comes from the SMU Graduate Liberal Studies Program. You can apply now for the Doctor of Liberal Studies degree beginning in the fall of 2016. A customizable evening graduate program for working professionals. More at smu.edu gls. This is Think on KERA. I'm Chris Boyd, speaking this hour with Rick Schenkman, who is publisher and editor of the History News Network, about his new book, Political Animals, How Our Stone Age Brain Gets in the Way of Smart Politics. Before we take some calls, Rick, I just want to talk about this. We are wired to empathize. We're even wired to behave altruistically in certain cases to people who are not members of our genetic line, right? People who are not direct family members. Is there something, though, about the scale of political issues that makes it harder for us to access that empathy? Well, anytime we are asked to be empathetic about people who dress differently than we do, who talk differently than we do, speak a foreign language, who live in a place where we can't find it on the map, we are going to turn them into abstractions. And as soon as we turn them into abstractions, that means we can't really empathize with them. And that's a real problem in foreign policy because it means that the American people in charge of the, the last remaining superpower on earth are making decisions about people that they don't really have a human empathetic connection to, and that can just spell disaster. All right, let's go to the phone now. We have Marsha on the line in Navarro County. Hi, Marsha. Good morning. Is there any hope? I intend to read the book anyway, but I'm, I can't wait to ask. Are there, does the author have instances when this burden of holding on to an, a belief or the belief trumps back? Are there cases where the voting public has changed an opinion based on facts? Thanks so much for your call, Marcia. Go ahead. Yes, the answer is uh, absolutely, and it's uh, when anxiety kicks in. So uh, let's go back to uh, the Watergate example that I spoke about earlier. The American people stuck by Nixon for 11 months after the Watergate burglary. 
And that's a sign of their partisan brains just um, refusing to face facts. But after the 11 months had elapsed, enough bad headlines had come out that they began to change their opinions. And by the 12th and 13th month after Watergate, in other words, uh, a little bit more than a year, uh, a majority moved away from support for Nixon. So that shows that facts in the end can actually matter, but it can take an awful long time. Uh, Here's the problem we've got with uh, global warming. Uh, Scientists tell us that we need to be acting now, for instance, in changing our uh, lifestyles so that we stop contributing uh, to uh, the phenomenon of global warming. Well, uh, the problem is until the human brain sees these ice uh, uh, cliffs falling in significant uh, amounts uh, and see it on TV night after night after night, we're going to be a little slow to react to that problem. And the challenge is, well, if we wait until we have that natural human nervous reaction to a threat to our uh, existence, uh, scientists say it'll be too late. We need to be acting now. We can't wait for uh, the the water to uh, lap up over uh, uh, the buildings in uh, Miami. Uh, we need to act now. Uh, so uh, that's that's the pessimistic part. But the positive part is People do ultimately react to the facts. All right. Let's go back to the phones. We have Sarah on the line in North Dallas. Hi, Sarah. Hi. Um, I'm glad to hear someone on the radio with some common sense. Your guest, I'm really interested. I'm going to have to buy his book. Uh, but what I, what's always uh, perplexed me is the – I wonder why is it that people in the in middle class – and lower income, the ones that vote Republican, why is it that they think that that party is going to help them when it's just the opposite? And I, I don't understand that. That's always been very perplexing to me. Any thoughts, Rick? Yes, well, it's very perplexing to social scientists, and there is no agreed uh, consensus to uh, explain why people uh, don't uh, vote for their own self-interest. But here are a couple of things that uh, observations I'd make. Uh, number one, um, our self-interest is defined uh, broadly for human beings. It's much more than just your your economic self-interest. So if you're an evangelical voter in Iowa who for whom uh, the most salient issue is abortion, um, you're going to vote for somebody who maybe isn't good for you economically, but uh, they're in sync with you morally. And we are, at the end of the day, um, much more in tune with morality than we are self-interest. Uh, that's a little counterintuitive. But your moral uh, perceptions well up from deep inside your brain, out of consciousness, and... Uh, according to the social scientist uh, Jonathan Hyatt, whose work I think of uh, very, very highly, uh, those uh, those moral beliefs that we uh, that we strongly hold, uh, they're not usually subject to a lot of rational debate. We just believe what we believe. So if you believe abortion is uh, bad, it's probably coming up from your unconscious. 
And then what you're doing when you debate it, uh, well, you're just coming up with a lot of reasons to justify this existing uh, belief that you already had. So when a politician makes a, uh, a claim on your moral beliefs uh, and he's in sync with your moral beliefs, well, he's much more likely to get your vote than if he is in sync with your economic uh, situation and, you know, vote for him and he's going to put more money in your pocket. Um, that can work. Uh, it obviously worked for FDR during the Great Depression and for Democrats for decades. But then uh, Republicans figured out how to use uh, uh, moral uh, beliefs uh, against uh, 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 Democratic politicians, and uh, they started uh, uh, winning election after election. One of the things that that causes you to be optimistic about our ability as a society to do things the right way or to amend the way we've been approaching politics is that culture has a great impact on our behavior. And and one example that you give is that, um, you know, by and large, people today are actually far less violent than they were thousands of years ago. Well, just think about 100 years ago in Waco, Texas— I'm speaking to a Texas audience, so uh, your your listeners may be aware of this. 100 years ago, there was a black man by the name of uh, Washington, uh, uh, Jesse Washington, and he was lynched in Waco after being accused of having uh, raped and killed a uh, a farm woman. And the uh, trial lasted uh, an hour. The jury was out for four minutes. And then after they returned, a mob stormed the uh, courthouse. Uh, They uh, grabbed uh, Washington and brought him out to uh, the city square in Waco and did horrible things. They chopped off his fingers. They uh, castrated him. And then they slowly burned him over an open fire. And this was in front of Thousands of people. Uh, the crowd is estimated to have been as large as 15,000 people, uh, many of whom were uh, cheering. Well, uh, this is awful. A hundred years from now, it's inconceivable to us. Only a hundred years. So here's what's interesting biological evolution takes hundreds of thousands of years, if not millions of years. Cultural evolution is super fast. It's change on steroids. So we can change ourselves. We can change our culture. We can change our norms. And that gives me tremendous hope. Let's go back to the phones now at 1-800-933-5372. We have Judy Kay on the line in Dallas. Hi, Judy Kay. Hi, Chris. Thanks. Sure. Listen, keeping with the moral theme, my question is in regard to politicians defense attorneys, prosecutors, judges that accuse and convict someone or a doctor that has now does something bad, and they never admit it. And then years later they go, oh, yeah, I messed up. Well, I don't understand that. You know you're doing wrong, and I don't understand the brain. How can that brain, part of the brain has any involved? Not all of them do it, but the majority, when they do do it, it's just awful. So that's my question. Thanks, Chris. Thanks for your call. Well, that's a great observation, and it's true. Look, we know in our own personal lives, uh, nobody likes to admit they were wrong. Politicians don't want to admit they're wrong any more than when you're uh, doing something as a child and you get caught. uh, You want to deny it. And I tell the story in the book of a primate 
uh, by the name of Lucy, who uh, knew sign language and who gets into an argument with a, this, a social scientist um, by the name of uh, Roger Fouts, uh, who taught sign language to uh, primates. Uh, she defecated on the living room floor of the house where she was living. She was raised as a, uh, just like a human being child, they even dressed her up in diapers and things like this. And uh, she defecated in the middle of the living room floor. She got into an argument with Roger, and they're conducting this argument through sign language. And Roger says, what's that? And she says, what's what? And she kind of denies that anything has gone wrong. And then he says, you know, what's that? And she immediately blames Sue, who's a graduate student who <laughs> pops her in and out of her uh, environment. And he says, no, no, that's not Sue. And she says, uh, um, uh, it's Roger. So now she turns the tables and she accuses him of of having defecated in the living room. Finally, uh, he's getting really mad <laughs> with sign language. Imagine they're face to face and they're signing this. Um, he says, no, not me. Who did it? And finally, she tells the truth. She cops a, a plea and she says, yes, I did it. Lucy, Lucy. Sorry, sorry. Dirty, dirty. Well, wow. What does that tell you about the human brain? We're primates. And primates, our primate ancestors were doing this, uh, so it's not a surprise that we human beings do it as well. We don't want to be caught. All right, I want to finish with this, Rick. You're a history guy and also a journalist um, looking at things in the modern era. Has there been uh, a primary season in American history that was this wild and woolly? Well, we used to have... um, Okay, first let me uh, point out this. Uh, We didn't have the primary system really until about a half a century ago or a little bit more than a half a century ago. So before that, it was the party bosses who mainly did the selecting of the candidates of uh, the two main parties. So we are in somewhat new territory um, that's the first observation. The second one is, no, there has <laughs> been no primary uh, in the last 50 or 60 years uh, since uh, we, we switched to the primary system uh, where uh, anything closely remote to what we're going through right now is happening. Uh, we are in uncharted waters. What's going to happen tonight in Iowa is going to set the world uh, uh, on its heels uh, who knows what's going to come out of it? It could be a, a President Trump, uh, which, uh, honestly, I'm personally scared uh, to daylights of. Do you think this is a factor of the individuals who are running for the nominations in this election, or is this a factor of the times that we live in? I think um, it's a problem uh, primarily of two factors. Uh, the Great Recession uh, left a deep gash, uh, an open wound in uh, the public uh, uh, perception of politics. Uh, That's the first thing. The second thing is uh, the ongoing threat from uh, uh, terrorism. So you put those two things together and people are uh, in an angry, upset, uh, worried, fearful mood. And all it takes is a couple of politicians to come along who are willing to um, breach the norms of civil behavior uh, like Donald Trump and just blatantly uh, appeal to people's instinctive fears and their anger. And you get a a primary uh, like we're seeing right now. 
All right, we just have about 30 seconds left. How do we get in the habit of questioning our own assumptions so that we know we're making good decisions? Well, you just have to, uh, uh, I guess, read the book and (laughs) understand all the different ways in which our brain can trick us. And once you're aware of it, it's just like uh, becoming a... uh, an educated consumer, which we started to do in the 1960s once our consciousness was raised about the ways that corporations were manipulating us. I'm alerting you to the ways politicians can manipulate your brain. And once you know that, you can then uh, take defensive measures. Rick Shankman is publisher and editor of the History News Network and author of the new book, Political Animals, How Our Stone Age Brain Gets in the Way of Smart Politics. Rick, it's been a really interesting conversation. Thanks for making time for us today. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Think is produced by Stephen Becker and engineered by Shelley Canavy. Our executive producer is Jeff Weddington, and we had help on the phones today from Braylon Becton. I'm on Twitter at Chris Boyd Think, and the show's email address is think at kera.org. Once again, I'm Chris Boyd. Thanks for listening, and have a great day.